Would you turn with me now to the book of Jude, chapter and only one. I will never forget, as a child, one of the favorite toys we had was a microscope. And we would take little things and put it under it, butterfly wings after ripping the butterfly apart. Now, we did this as kids, of course. You did it too. Don't laugh. And I remember taking a strand of my hair, putting it under the microscope, and being amazed at how ugly it was under that microscope. When you look at it naturally, apart from any kind of a device, it looks straight and nice and smooth, but you put it under a microscope and you really see it for what it is. And so we would experiment. We would take little pieces of our skin and put it under there. And though outwardly it looks like one unit, you put it under a microscope, you see how it's broken apart. Thursday night is a microscopic view of the scripture where we take things in depth. I hope that on Thursday nights you bring your Bibles because tonight you're going to use them. We're going to be turning to various texts of Scripture as we teach this text and see what it relates to. But it's a night on Thursday nights where we really study to understand what the text means in its totality. There's a difference between teaching or preaching from the Bible and teaching and preaching the Bible. Anybody can take a text jump and depart from the text, make a lot of illustrations and examples and never really return and teach the text. But there's a great difference between that and teaching what the Bible says verse by verse, thought for thought, phrase for phrase to get the whole counsel of God. And the results is not only a strong, healthy body, but a voracious appetite for the Word of God. And we've been able to see that here. We've been able to see the development of a school of ministry. And one of the reasons that we developed the school of ministry, by the way, is because there were different outfits here in town that teach the Bible and uh, were called Bible colleges and so forth and do a good work. But they would all tell me that about 90% or better of their student body came from this church. And when we started our school of ministry, one of them said, We were doing great until you started your school of ministry. Now our attendance has dropped back considerably. Not that that's what we intended, but the point is, is that healthy sheep want more. And they want to study it on their own. Not just get it from the pulpit and be spoon-fed, but learn how to study the Word and then how to teach the Word. And many of them are becoming teachers. One of the most exciting things for me is to see some of you soon to be leaving, starting other churches in different parts of the country. That is, to me, it's a gas. It's a great thrill. And so tonight, we are in the book of Jude. We've spent several weeks here, and we're now in verse 5. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, we commit the examination of the Scriptures and the examination of our lives over to you tonight. We ask, Father, that the Holy Spirit of the living God who was the ultimate author of this book, would instruct our hearts. We have come, Father, from various avenues this week, from the workforce, some of us in ministry, some in education, some as just mothers who have been 
battling to keep afloat with the kids and the bills and so forth. And we've come, Lord, to seek Your face. We thank You, Father, tonight for the examples to the mid-high school kids in their testimony, through Carlos and the work going on in Mexico and through Chip. We pray, Father, that the Word of God would now burn in our hearts as You open to us the Scriptures. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have seen that the theme of the book of Jude is the warning against apostasy. And if you are new to this study, let me just reiterate the meaning of that word. It means to remove, to withdraw, to go away from, or to depart. Jesus Christ asked rhetorically, when the Son of Man returns, will He find the faith upon the earth? In Greek, that sentence is set up as to demand a negative answer. No. The faith, by and large, will have become depleted to apostasy. That doesn't mean there won't be any Christians, but let's face it, when Jesus comes the second time, that will be after the rapture of the church the faith will have departed along with the saints. And what is left is a world under judgment, though a great multitude has been saved after that event, under judgment. When the Son of Man returns, will He find the faith on the earth? It is evident, and perhaps more evident when we get to election year, that we live in a fallen world. Elections to me are are, are real fun. They're exciting. There's something great about watching Democratic and Republican national conventions and hearing the speeches. But I've got to be pessimistically honest with you. It's the same old song and dance. It's repeated in different cycles, but it's the same thing repeated. It's evident that we live in a fallen world. The marks of the disease of sin are everywhere in the themes of songs, in the depictions in television shows, in broken relationships, in man's tendency toward war and conflict. It is obvious that sin has tainted this world in which we live. The church, on the other hand, was always called to be very different from the world. It was called to be the bride of Christ. It was called to be a peculiar people. We are peculiar, but the word means a special people, set apart, a holy nation and a royal priesthood. We've also seen over the last several weeks that the church has not always lived up to its true and heavenly calling. And Jesus even predicted that. He said there would be leaven in the church that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that grows into a huge tree and the fowls of the air, always in the Scripture, usually in the Scripture, and in this case, indicative of evil. Leaven, of course, is always indicating evil. The Scripture speaks often that in the last days there will be a departure from the faith. The same word is used, falling away, an apostasia. And so we've given Jude the name Acts of the Apostates. Even as after John's Gospel, you have the Acts of the Apostles. As the church went on, Satan tried to defeat it through persecution. That didn't work. He decided to join the church. That seems to work quite well. 
And so Jude's theme is the acts of the apostates. And beginning in verse 5, there's a list of them. Several examples that we're going to be going over the next several weeks. Even in the Puritan days, one of its leaders, John Trapp, noticed this tendency toward falling away from the faith in Jesus Christ that was pervading the church. And he said a simple sentence. He said, It would be far easier to write a book of apostates in this age rather than at one time to write a book of martyrs. Now, Jude, to give you a little brief outline so far, begins with a godly greeting. He then, in verse 3, says, Look, guys, I tried to write an encouraging letter. That was my heart's desire. I wanted to write something of our common salvation. But, he said, I found it necessary to write to you to contend earnestly for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. I was detoured. The Holy Spirit pressured me to go in this direction because of the apostasy that's going on within the church. And now in verse 5, actually verse 4, he gives, as we saw last week, three marks, three ways to look and see if a person is in that state of falling away. Now in verse 5, he begins with examples and he reaches back into biblical history and pulls them out one by one. And as a set of dominoes falling, he shows how that falling away, departing from the faith, is nothing new. It's as old as human history. Cain is ex- uh, used as an example in these verses. Uh, Korah is used as an example. The children of Israel, angels, many of them. In verse 5, let's just read ahead. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. That will be our text tonight, but let's go on. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and have perished in the rebellion of Korah. Six examples are given in the verses we just read. Three of them are corporate, that is, groups of people. Three of them are individuals all intended to be used as examples of those who have fallen away or apostatized in the Old Testament. He begins in verse 5 by saying, I want to remind you. You know, it's interesting that all of the stories that we just mentioned, all of the examples of the Old Testament, probably all of us are familiar with them as Christians. In fact, if you've been raised a Christian, 
Like my son is being raised a Christian, having a godly environment in the Word of God, something I didn't have growing up. He already knows the story of Balaam and the donkey. He knows the story about Cain. He knows some of the stories we've read. However, though we may know them, we are constantly fighting what I'll call a decay of knowledge. Have you ever read a scripture? You think, man, it's been a long time since I've been reminded of that truth. I'd forgotten all about it. Oh, that's so rich. That's so fresh. That's so powerful. We always need to be reminded even though we already know it. That's a pattern, by the way, throughout the scripture. Peter, when he wrote his epistle, said, Therefore, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know them and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you. Same idea is expressed here in Jude. In view of the coming apostasy, let's be reminded of these things from the past to warn us. One of the marks of a good teacher is that he repeats himself. One of the marks of a good teacher is that he repeats himself. Oh, I already said that. <laughs> and so what Jude is basically doing is saying, as we look into the present state of affairs in the church, and as we even look toward the future as predicted, that in the last days would come a departure, let's first of all look back into history and use these things as examples. You know, there's something about going over familiar territory over and over again. I have read through the Bible a number of different occasions. I've got to tell you, each time it gets better because so much of it I forget and I need to be reminded of it. You know, I have met people from time to time who will say, oh, we're reading that again? I've already read that once. Like he's a master of the text or something. Do you remember the two who walked on the road to Emmaus and Jesus comes up to them in Luke chapter 24? And he starts uncovering scripture after scripture, prophecy after prophecy that would speak of the coming of the Messiah, something they grew up as Jewish kids knowing. They knew all those things. Yet they said, did not our hearts burn within us as he spoke to us along the way and opened up to us the scripture? Every Christian that is truly a disciple of Jesus Christ, knows the importance of a daily appointment with God, or nightly, where he or she will dedicate that time to being in the Word of God, though you have already read it before, and be immersed in the truth of the Scripture. One of the greatest sayings ever penned, apart from the Word of God, is a Swedish proverb that says... This book will keep you from sin, but sin will keep you from this book. And then there's another little saying that's more modern. Seven days without reading the Bible make one week. Not just a week of time, but make you weak spiritually. If you do not remind yourself of past truths of the Scripture, you will be a lax Christian. And you will be a very inadequate Christian to handle the onslaught of the enemy in this present age. You need the Word of God constantly reminding you of the truth. Joshua was told, Do not let this book of law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will prosper. Then you will be successful. In verses 5 through 7, there's examples. We're going to take verse 5 tonight, but let's look at the groups 
three groups that Jude uses as examples of falling away. The first, in verse 5, is the nation of Israel that we're going to cover tonight. Secondly, the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, verse 6. And then finally, verse 7, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, notice, they are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Those three groups represent three classes of creation as seen in the Scripture. Number one, saved people. Number two, angelic beings. And number three, unsaved people. We're going to take them one at a time. First of all, verse 5. Let's go through it once again. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people, that is the people of Israel, out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jude uses God's people, the people of Israel, the covenant people saved through the blood of the Passover lamb as an example of falling away. And it gets heavy. Having saved them out of Egypt, afterward he destroyed those who did not believe. The example that Jude uses of the children of Israel from the Old Testament and the deliverance out of Egypt is not to show God's covenant with His people, though God did have a covenant with them. This example is not used to show the tabernacle and how it points to Christ, though the tabernacle was the center of life and it pointed to Jesus Christ. But what's the theme of Jude? Apostasy, falling away. So his example is based upon his theme how the children of Israel weren't always the way they began and God judged them. And so I'm going to give to you a general principle in verse 5, one great lesson that we're going to explore. And as I share this lesson with you, it probably will and should shock you. The lesson in verse 5 is that God, after He saves a people, reserves the right to judge that people and even to destroy that people if they become guilty of certain forms of unbelief or sins that spring from unbelief. Now we're going to get into it and see what that means. I realize that what I just said is not often spoken about. In fact, I have found it very difficult to find much comment in terms of commentaries on scriptures like verse 5 and some of the ones we're going to uncover tonight. It's not a popular subject. Granted, it's not a major theme of the New Testament doctrine, yet it is included enough in the Scriptures that we had to take a warning from it. I believe firmly in God's grace. We're God's people. We live in the age of grace. God's unmerited favor. I also believe in God's ability to keep a person who's committed to Jesus Christ and that person's faith is indestructible as it's placed firmly in Jesus Christ from a true Christian. Jude, by the way, also believes in that. He's not just getting down on people saying you're going to fall away. Look at verse 4. Now, uh, Excuse me, verse 24. I was only 20 verses off. Verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. 
So remind yourself of that, that Jude believes in the keeping power of God. Paul the Apostle said that he was confident that God who began a work in us will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, verse 5 of Jude also stands that after God saved His people out of the land of Egypt, afterward He destroyed those who believed not. I think at this point, it would help to give that verse to you in two other translations, just so it could soak in. First of all, the Amplified Bible treats it this way. Now I want to remind you, though you were fully informed once and for all, that though the Lord at one time delivered a people out of the land of Egypt, He subsequently destroyed those of them who did not believe, who refused to adhere to, trust in, and rely upon Him. The Knox translation puts it this way, that He to destroy those who proved to be unfaithful. Now that raises a number of questions right off the bat. It gets us a little bit antsy. Three questions that come up from this text. What does it mean when it says Israel was saved? Number two, what does it mean to say Israel was in unbelief? And number three, what does the destruction by the Lord mean? So we want to hack at those one at a time. First of all, in verse 5, I want to remind you that though you once knew this, the Lord having saved the people out of the land of Egypt. We don't need to turn in our Bibles to any of the texts because we know just off the top of our heads the truth of that part of the verse we just read. Israel lived in Egypt for 430 years. Much of that time they were slaves. They were under the bondage of Pharaoh and the taskmasters who beat them, who made them not able to worship the one true God. And so Israel cried out unto the Lord, God, get us out of this mess. From the time they cry unto the Lord after being in Egypt for some 400 years, God refers to Israel as His own possession, His people. God says, I have heard the cries of my people. I have seen their sorrows. I know their affliction. I am come to deliver. Moses stood before the Pharaoh and was instructed by God to put it this way, let my people go. They were God's people. When it says God saved them out of Egypt, it does not just mean that they were delivered from bondage but they were saved in that they were delivered to worship the Lord. It was mere, not just a mere, I'm drowning, save me. But they were saved to be God's people. So they were God's covenant people. In fact, Moses has to remind, doesn't have to, but he does anyway. In one of his prayers to the Lord, Moses says, Lord, these are your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. So the nation of Israel, God's people, were saved, delivered, but also led into a land of Canaan, a new land, to worship and serve God. However, the text says, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now what does that mean, that they did not believe? They're God's people. They're saved through the Passover blood of the Lamb. God takes them out of bondage, takes them through the wilderness on their way to Canaan, and yet it says God destroyed them because they did not believe. What does that mean? 
Let's turn back to what that refers to, to the book of Numbers. So turn your Bibles all the way back to the fourth book of the Bible, the book of Numbers, chapter 14. And we'll look at it together. Now, as you're turning there, let me just say something that lest you think this is a lightweight kind of a text or teaching and not all that important, you should be reminded that the example that we're about to read is mentioned no less than three times in the New Testament alone and several times throughout the Bible as the example for God's people to avoid. Uh, Numbers 14, actually we'll begin at Numbers 13. And read a few verses together. The background is this. The children of Israel have left Egypt. They're on their way to Canaan. It's been a few weeks. They arrive at a place called Kadesh Barnea. A strategic location close enough where they can spy out the land. So, God says, Moses, I want you to take 12 men. I want them to become spies. Send them from Kadesh Barnea into the land to spy out the land and bring the report back. Moses sends the twelve spies. Ten of them bring back a horrible report. Two of them bring back a great report. And they both give their speeches before the people of Israel. Let's see what happens. Verse 26, chapter 13. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh and brought back word to them and to all the congregation, and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are very strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Termites. Oh, that's not in there. Dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Now, so far, the report was good at the beginning. Here's the fruit as they held up these huge grapes from Eshkol, right between Hebron and Bethlehem. And people went, wow, God's promises are right on. However... We saw giants. The people had to be quieted in verse 30. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let's go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with them said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they're stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw giants, the descendants of Anak, that came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Now there's a a lot of lessons in this. Whenever you view your problem apart from God, it's always huge. When you put it into perspective of how big God is, those nine-foot giants shrink down to the right perspective. How do we know that? We know that because if you read the book of Joshua, when they finally get to the land of Canaan and Rahab the harlot 
briefs the two spies that were sent by Joshua. Forget the ten. They didn't do any good. Just send two. The two spies talk over things with Rahab and she says, Don't you know that the terror of the children of Israel have fallen upon us? And we are like grasshoppers in your sight. You see, they were afraid of the children of Israel and yet the ten were afraid of the giants because their perspective wasn't my problem with God, but just my problem apart from God in the natural. So, chapter 14, verse 1, let's see what happens. Make this great example that we just read about. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness... Why has the Lord brought us out to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us select a leader and return to Egypt. And Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then He will bring us into the land to give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. Jesus said something very interesting. He said, for every idle word that a man speaks, I'll have to give an account. When they said, oh, that we'd only die in the wilderness, it was almost as if God answered their prayer. As if it were a prayer. Because, because of this sin, eventually 38,000 people will die. No, it's not excuse 38. They, they will be there 38 more years and 28,000 of them, the whole generation will fall and be massacred out in the wilderness. If they would have said, okay, let's go for it, man. Joshua and Caleb are right on and went from Kadesh into the land. They'd have been in there in about a week. But because the children of Israel said, no, we're going to die, they stayed 38 more years in the middle of the Tulis until that whole generation died and their carcasses filled the wilderness. And the new generation, along with Joshua and Caleb, were able to enter into the land of Canaan and cross the Jordan River. Look at verse 26. Let's skip ahead. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, Joshua, the son of Nun, You shall by no means enter the land which I swore 
that I would make you dwell in. But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in. And they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses will fall in this wilderness. So when Jude says God destroyed those who did not believe, what he's talking about is they didn't believe the promises of God that he'd bring them into the land of Canaan. They listened to the bad report. God said, I'll give you the land. They said, I don't believe you. And because of their, not just hesitation, their blatant, adamant unbelief, refusal to adhere to the promises of God, they died in the wilderness. And they were not able to see the promised land. Canaan in the scripture is not a type of death and going to heaven. It's a type of victory in our present life tonight in Christ. You know, it's one thing to be saved and to be a Christian. It's another thing to live in the fullness of being a Christian. Or as people often say, it's one thing to have Jesus as your Savior. You've got your fire insurance. And another thing, to know Him as your Lord. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And there's a difference between those two things. The importance of this warning that is here in the book of Numbers, as we said, is so significant, it is mentioned three times in the New Testament. 1 Jude verse 5. God saved the people out of Egypt, but He destroyed those who did not believe, and we just read what He did. There's two other places I think we should look at before we wrap it up, and that is Hebrews chapter 3. Let's turn to it. We'll tie it all together. Hebrews chapter 3. He is writing to Jewish Christians. They are Hebrew Christians. They've heard the gospel. They know the gospel. But because of some love of the past, some love of sin, some refusal to enter into that new life that God has for them, they're left out there in the spiritual wilderness. You know, it's a lot like a fire in a hotel. So you're on the 10th floor. Firemen come. They put a net on the bottom. You're standing on the windowsill. And they say, jump! Now you know the net is your only hope. At least... That thought flashes through your mind. You know they're right. You know the fire's coming. And the best bet is to jump. But you say, no, maybe you've got some new possessions in your house you're trying to hold on to. Or you think, oh, there's another way out. Oh, fire, fire, I've heard that before. But for some reason, though that's your only escape, you don't jump. You refuse to believe. Now look at chapter 3 of Hebrews, verse 12. Beware, brethren, not unbelievers, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing, there's our word, from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, while it is said, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. We just read about the rebellion in the book of Numbers. That's what Jude is referring to. For who having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? 
And to whom did he swear that he would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. The unbelief that he is speaking about is not for unbelievers, folks. He's not saying they didn't believe, they were never saved, they're never God's people, they're heathens. No, he's speaking about the unbelief in the promises of God. And later on he says they didn't mix it with faith. They had the gospel, they had the promises, but they didn't mix it with faith. Now he's speaking to brethren. Beware lest any of you have that heart of unbelief. What do you do with the promises of God? How important are they? How do you lean upon them or trust in them? There's a great story about Crowfoot, chief of the Blackfoot Indians in Alberta, Canada. When the Canadian Pacific Railroad decided to put a railroad through their land, and Crowfoot gave them the permission to build on Indian land from Medicine Hat to Calgary, Alberta, to recompense him, so to speak, for what he had done. They gave him a lifetime pass. He could ride on the train anytime he wanted. You know what he did with it? Folded it up, stuck it in a leather patch, and wore it around his neck to the day he died. There's never a record of him ever redeeming the pass and riding on the train. Now, there's a lot of Christians like that. We tack the promises of God in golden plaques and put them on our walls. We have little promise books and promise gadgets that even twirl and kick out the song standing on the promises of God. But the Bible says don't be hearers of the word, but doers or what we deceive ourselves. We can deceive ourselves. Taking the promises of God, mixing them with faith, and then standing on them to apply them. Now there are people when it comes to the idea of faith especially God's promises, some of them are outrageous. I've heard people say, oh, I can't believe, man. I'm too intelligent. I need proof. I'm an empiricist. I'm a pragmatist. If I don't see it, I don't believe it. I can't have faith. I can't live that way. That's baloney. Every one of you has faith. You don't go to a restaurant without faith. You don't go to a restaurant and think, now I wonder if I'm going to get poisoning or die if I eat this food tonight. I don't know. No, you have faith that the cook is going to perform what it says on the menu. You have faith when you drive around the streets of Albuquerque. Now, I know that takes a lot of faith around these parts. <laughs> but you trust the highway system. You don't think, if I go around this curb, I'm going to jump off a bridge or there's going to be a river that crosses the freeway. No, you have faith. You trust if you can trust the highway system and a restaurant owner, how much more the living God who lives and reigns forever and has given you His promises in the Word of God. I'd like you to turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where we get another example and we're going to apply it a little more deeply now to our personal life. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. By the way, on your own, read Hebrews 4. We just stopped at Hebrews 3. We don't have enough time to really expound on it tonight. So on your own. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's look at the warning. Verse 1. Moreover, brethren, again brethren, not unbelievers, brothers, Christians, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. 
all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them. And in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by the serpents, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the age have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now the same example, folks, is used as in Jude 5, as in Hebrews 3 and 4, the example that we read about of the children of Israel in unbelief. In 1 Corinthians, Paul broadens it to several episodes and he brings out four lessons that every Christian here tonight ought to learn. Four warnings. These four warnings are things that will occur because of an unbelieving heart that we should be aware of. First of all, he mentions, verse 7, idolatry. Unbelief can lead to idolatry. Case in point, children of Israel, Exodus 32. They go to Mount Sinai. Moses takes his trip up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. After a while, they get a little bored, they get a little antsy, and they persuade Aaron to make him a golden calf and start worshiping it. They start carousing. They get involved in illicit sexual activity, an orgy, as the original scripture would say. Idolatry is putting anything before God. It's worshiping anything other than God Himself. If you worship any person any angel, any icon, and you don't worship God, you worship that instead in place of God, that's idolatry. Idolatry could be a lot of other things. A person can be idolatry. Yourself can be idolatry. In fact, that's the God of this age. That's the God of this present generation, is that we worship ourselves. Self-esteem, self-image. Get your, How do you see yourself? There's probably more mirrors been manufactured in the last 10 years than any other time. We are so concerned about ourselves. Not that we should look like garbage as we go out of the house, but it should be kept in perspective. In the last days, men will be lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God. It can become an idol. Verse 8, sexual immorality. Unbelief can lead to sexual immorality for which God will judge the person. Numbers 14 is where we began. That's where the unbelief began. They didn't want to believe Joshua and Caleb. They believed the bad report. They said, let's stone the good guys. That unbelief resulted in Numbers chapter 16. Don't turn to it. Let me read it to you. Excuse me, Numbers chapter 25. While Israel was staying at Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifice of their gods. 
The people ate and they bowed before these gods. And you know what happened when that happened? 24,000 of these men were killed instantly by God. God judged them, His people. Sexual immorality stemmed from unbelief. Among Christians, whenever there is sexual immorality, it often comes as a root result of unbelief. Belief in themselves and overconfidence where they'll get close to the icons of immorality. Magazines, movies, stores, people. They'll think, oh, I can handle it. I'm strong enough. Or they'll flirt with people. They'll become overconfident in themselves instead of fleeing the temptation. They'll flee temptation, give the devil their forwarding address, and they get busted. It can stem from unbelief. The third thing he mentions, verse 9, is testing God. Testing God. Verse 9. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. It began with Numbers 14, unbelief. That led to another episode in Numbers 21 that he's referring to. Let me read it to you. They traveled, the children of Israel, from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. And they spoke against God. And against Moses. And they said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. And the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. And they bit the people. And many Israelites died. Unbelief can result in testing the Lord. You know, there's a lot of Christians who try to see how much they can get away with. And still be a Christian, still be considered in the ranks of a believer, but do whatever and get away with it. Ananias and Sapphira tried that. They said, hey, we gave all our money to the Lord. They didn't have to, but the fact is they lied. They said they did. And they kept a bunch for themselves so they could go retire and have fun. The point is they lied. And so the apostle says to these two, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? And they were killed. There are people today who, like in the book of Jude, will say stuff like, we're under grace. I'm under the spout where the glory comes out. And that's where I'm going to live. And God's grace means that God is always forgiving. And if God is gracious and abounding in love and always forgiving, I can live any way I please. That's going beyond the limits. That's testing the Lord. Unbelief can lead to idolatry, can lead to sexual immorality, can lead to testing God. And verse 10, complaining. Complaining. Nor complain, verse 10, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. The unbelief of Numbers 14 led to another episode in Numbers 16. Again, let me just read it to you. Um, I won't read it all to you for sake of brevity, but there was a rebellion. Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and a few others were conspiring against Moses. God judged them. They were destroyed. And then it says, The next day the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You have killed the Lord's people. You know what God's immediate response was? The death of 14,700 people. Aren't you glad you don't live among the children of Israel? Complaining... is a lack of unbelief. 
It is saying, God is not wise because that's why I'm here in this situation. God is not loving. God is not sovereign. God is not doing anything about it. The stem of it is unbelief. It can lead to a bitter lifestyle filled with this venomous kind of animosity against God and against God's people that stems from unbelief. It challenges God's wisdom. Paul the Apostle said, I've learned in whatever state I'm in to be content. It's not something that comes naturally, by the way. I learned how to be content. It's not that easy. Now look at verse 12 once again, and we'll finish that up. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Just in case this evening you're thinking, well, none of these things apply to me. This will never happen. Take heed lest he fall. Now, there's the last part of Jude chapter 5, Jude verse 5, that we didn't cover yet. The first part is that God saved a people. He took them out of bondage and delivered them through the wilderness on their way to Canaan. They were God's covenant people, God's chosen people, redeemed by the blood of the Passover lamb. A lot of them rebelled and through unbelief fell to idolatry, sexual immorality, testing the Lord, complaining. The last part of verse 5 of Jude, I'll read it to you again. Afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. Now, what does that mean? What is this destruction that it's talking about? Okay, let's just get right to the point. In its context, it is not referring to the loss of salvation. It's not saying, well, because they blew it, they rebelled, they were in idolatry, and they, they fell into some of these things that God cut them off forever, and they never made it to heaven. No. What they lost was the opportunity to get into the land of Canaan, and what was destroyed? Their bodies, their flesh. They were killed. Their flesh was destroyed. The word destroyed in verse 5 is the Greek word apolumi, which means to put an end to, to ruin, to render useless, to kill, or to declare that one must be put to death. Wrapping all of this up, we live in an age of grace. God loves you. God redeems you. When you come to the Lord, to whom much is given, much is required. And one of the scriptures we don't like to refer to much is judgment begins at the house of God. There is a possibility, as we said at the very beginning of the premise, when God saves a people, He reserves the right because they've reached that higher level of responsibility and privilege to judge that people and even destroy that people. In the New Testament, in the book of Corinthians, Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife, incest. And you are puffed up and you have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. In other words, I'm judging you because you did not put him out of the fellowship. You didn't take judgment, and judgment will now come. For indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have rightly judged as though I were present concerning him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh 
that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. That incestuous man, because of his lack of repentance and changing and being adamantly in unbelief and deciding, I'm going to live in sexual immorality, I don't care what they do, God reserved the right to kill him. Does that mean he wouldn't be saved? No. If he's God's redeemed person, that doesn't mean he wouldn't be saved. But when you have an animate kind of a response like that, it could mean that he's not even a believer and that God will judge that person by death. God reserves that right. I don't think that happens in every single case because I think if it did, there'd be a lot of cemetery plots taken up that aren't at this point. Now listen to this, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Therefore, whoever eats bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep, a Christian metaphor for death. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. Another example, Ananias and Sapphira, struck by the Holy Spirit to purify the church. These examples that we have issued tonight are not so that we will sit and judge people who are sick. That's wrong. Maybe they're under God's judgment. The faith movement has held tenaciously to that wrong doctrine. Or, oh, look... He died at a young age. He must have been in sin, like Job's three friends were declaring. The purpose, as we read about in Corinthians, is to examine ourselves, not anyone else, not to look around and judge others because they're sick or others have died, but to examine ourselves as a personal warning that we would take heed lest we fall. Now, what's the solution to all this? The solution is simple. God has given us this. His word, inerrant, infallible. It's like a sword that pierces, right? Isn't that what the book of Hebrews says? It cuts between the joints and the marrow. It discerns the thoughts and the intents of the heart. If you judge yourself by this book, by word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Well, if you sinned, what do you do? If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Read the Word. Study the Word. Meditate on the Word. Teach the Word. But more importantly, obey the Word. As James says, don't be hearers of the Word only, but doers. Otherwise, you deceive yourself and you're like a man who looks in the mirror in the morning and goes, boy, I need help. Look at my hair. Ugly. And then he walks away from the mirror and forgets what he saw. So be doers of the Word, not hearers only. I'd like to close with what Vance Havner, who's now in heaven, He was the first man who stood on Capitol Hill and in the White House as a representative, as a chaplain to that area. And he said, the old book, that is the Bible, has been buried many times. Even as now men would bury God. However, the corpse has a habit of coming to life in the midst of internment to outlive all of the pallbearers. There are people who have disregarded this book and because they've disregarded this book, believers or unbelievers have suffered the judgment of God, I believe. And judgment begins at the house of God. 
It's not, well, because we're Christians, we can do anything we want to, man. We're under grace. They're unbelievers. We can live freely, though. You are under grace. And as Paul says in Romans, because of God's grace, it means that we're free to be a slave to God. That's where your freedom begins. You're a slave to God. So am I. And we've been given a high privilege. And it's a high and holy privilege of being a royal priesthood that comes with higher responsibilities. Heavenly Father, as unpopular as a text like this certainly is to many, we want to thank you that you've given us the opportunity as a body of Christ to examine it, to explore it, that we might apply ourselves to it. That within us there would not be a heart of unbelief, of turning against you and your word, your promises, that could lead to idolatry, that could lead to sexual immorality, that could lead to going beyond the bounds and testing you, or that could lead to complaining against where you brought us in this life as we've submitted to you. Father, in any of these things, as we examine our own hearts and we see them plainly, we want to repent of them tonight and turn to you and be cleansed and live in the light of true Christian liberty. Freedom to be your slave in Jesus' name.